Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Well, this morning we are continuing on a new series that we just started last week in the book of Galatians. We um, are particularly looking at Galatians with an eye toward and a view to um, the Protestant Reformation. This fall marks the 500th anniversary of Luther um, kind of kicking off and uh, his spark that ignited what would become the Protestant Reformation. And so um, we're looking at uh, using um, the, what happened in the, with the Reformers and the things that they were wrestling through understanding that the same issues that Paul wrestled through 1,500 years prior to the Reformation came up then and were present then, and they continue now. And so today we come to Galatians chapter 1. We're in verse 10 through the end of the chapter, and we come to a fascinating portion in this letter today. I mean, as we do, what we see today is that, that the Apostle Paul um, was, is, it was free from, and he, he begins by saying, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? And so let's, actually, let's just read the text, and then we'll jump, jump right in um, today. So this is what we have, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so Paul here talks a little bit about his conversion experience. It's something that we have detailed for us in the book of Acts as well. But here, the overarching theme of this section that is, starts right at the top when he says, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man or please God? You see, the apostle Paul had come under fire from the people in the churches in the, in the region of Galatia, and his authority as an apostle had come under scrutiny and critique. The amazing 
amazing thing to me as I read this, though, is, is, is that Paul, I don't think this is just him putting up an act. I think he really was this impervious to criticism and to people-pleasing. And I don't know that I feel that same kind of freedom. I don't know about you, but I think most of us wrestle with and battle with people-pleasing. We want to be recognized. We want to be liked. We feel the pressure to perform because we want to be loved and appreciated. Maybe it's the, we feel the pressure of potential that has been spoken over us. Uh, Martin Luther struggled with some of this too. There's, his conversion story is, is somewhat famous if you do any studies in Luther's life. Um, Luther was, was studying law. His dad was a merchant who had worked hard to put him through school, and he was studying to become a lawyer and, and gain prestige. And for his dad, that investment was they didn't have like IRAs and 401ks, and so he was investing into his son's future for his own stability as in his later years. And Luther was on, on the road alone at one time, and it, and, and it was famously told that a lightning storm came upon him, and he was so terrified by the lightning storm that came up, which sometimes I'm like, really that bad of a storm? Do you guys remember a storm that rolled through D.C. a couple weeks ago? And it came through, and I was standing at Tunnicliffs by Eastern Market and could not go home because it was, it was terrifying. So Luther threw himself down into a ditch and, and cried out, I'll become a monk! And then he did. <laughs> and his dad was horrified. And it became a decades-long struggle between him and his father as he had to deal with the displeasure and disappointment of his dad, who made it clear that he disagreed with what his son had done, that he had wasted his investment in him. Paul doesn't seem to feel the weight of that. Luther went on. It didn't deter him, but it was something that he wrestled with internally. And I think this is something that most of us wrestle with. And this is why when people say things about us that aren't true, damaging and mean things about us, it messes with us. We're not able to just let it roll off our backs because it gets into our minds and messes with our hearts. It can be paralyzing and, and make us draw back from relationships with other people because we're scared to get hurt again. It can be, and we pull back into self-protection. Well, Paul gives us an antidote to the poison of people-pleasing today and the way to be free. Now, again, the context here, the apostle's conversion story is important to us because it was a dramatic one. He tells us here who he was. He said, you've heard of my former life and how I persecuted the church of God and violently tried to destroy them. Well, that's captured for us in Acts chapter 8, where it says this, that the first Christian martyr was a man named Stephen. And as he was killed, it says in chapter 8, Saul, who is Paul, this is just his Jewish and Roman names, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering into house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the Apostle Paul's background. This is who he was. And then in Acts chapter 9, something dramatic happened. It says in, in, in chapter 9, Now he went on his way, and he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, 
whom you are persecuting, but rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So he, for three days, finally God called a man named Ananias, who was told by Jesus to go and pray for Saul. To which Ananias said, wait, who? You want me to go and find this guy? And so he went and he prayed for him and something like scales fell off of Saul's eyes and he was baptized and immediately began to proclaim Jesus in synagogues. And we don't hear a lot more about the Apostle Paul's life and journey and conversion story in Acts. We do know that that he went on to be the apostle to the Gentiles, that he went on missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire, bringing God's word to a diversity of people that went beyond the Jewish character of just keeping it in Jerusalem. And so Paul was used powerfully by God God that way. We know that the, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters that are in our New Testaments. Out of 27 books, that means half of the titles in the New Testament were written by this man. And so he went on to do powerful things, but without the book of Galatians, we have a pretty significant gap between his conversion and the time that he's commissioned in Acts chapter 13 to go and, and go on his first missionary journey. So I love that we, he fills in some of the gaps here. He tells us what happened, and we learn that this was a period of time between 14 and 17 years between the time that Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and the time that he went off as a missionary to the Gentiles. That is a long time. And so that's the context that sets the tone for the next two Sundays for us as we look at at two sections where Paul is telling us about his own journey and his own story. But again, one theme emerges loud and clear in the text that we have in front of us this morning, and that is that Paul had been freed from people-pleasing. Something had happened to give this guy the boldness to be able to stand and say, you know, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he went as far as to say to the Corinthian church, hey, what is it to me that you stand in judgment of me? I don't even stand in judgment over myself. So how could he live that freed, that released, repeatedly adamant that he was not pleasing men, that his gospel was not from men? that he was living to please God alone. And so that's what we're going to look at today is what do we learn from the Apostle Paul on on freedom from people-pleasing. This morning, church, I have seven points that we're going to roll through. We'll roll through them. You're in the morning service, so you know that Ebenezer Church worships right after us, and I have a timeline. If you want to hear an extended version, come back this evening, and there's no telling on when I'll end. (laughs) So this morning, we're going to roll through quick. It'll be recorded. If you, want, if, you, if you miss something, don't worry about it. We just got to keep going. So here's what we got. Seven points, seven, uh, seven releases for us that free us from the pressure to people, please. They're all rooted right in the text. Number one, root yourself firmly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't hide where his freedom comes from. It's very clear. 
He makes it very clear. He said, when he says, I would have you know, brothers, that this gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it th- through a revelation from Jesus Christ. He's saying this is not a human construct. Again, his authority as an apostle was under fire from these churches, and so he's making it clear to them. He didn't go and learn from Peter. That's when he says Cephas here. That's Peter's Aramaic name. And so he didn't go and learn from Peter. He, didn't, he wasn't a disciple of Peter or James or John, the three pillars of the apostles, that he himself was an apostle, that he sought out fellowship with them, but it wasn't that he was preaching Peter's gospel. He had had an interaction with the risen Lord Jesus himself, appointed by the risen Lord Jesus Christ to be his witness and to be his apostle. And so he's saying, this is not a human construct. This isn't just some philosophical endpoint that we came up with. It's a transcendent reality, and it is the narrative within which we exist Then we need to retell the false narratives that we've built in our lives. The revelation of Jesus Christ as risen from the dead changes everything, and he changed everything for the Apostle Paul. His life did a 180. But it also was simultaneously overnight and wasn't. Again, you read the book of Acts and you have the impression that, that Paul came to Christ, started preaching, and was sent out to preach to the Gentiles. And you learn in Galatians, no, this was like 15 years that he spent teaching, yes, but being developed and understanding more deeply what Christ had done. But what we see is that the gospel of Jesus Christ reoriented his moral compass. It showed him true north. And showed him where his story fits within it. And so what is this gospel? Well, we see this right off the top in the letter to the Galatians. That the gospel is good news. That, that Christ has been risen from the dead. And that, that that good news extends God's grace to us and peace to us. From God our Father, in, in chapter 1, verse 3. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That is the good news. That is the gospel. And if that is true, that God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, that he died in our place for our sins, that he was risen from, that God raised him from death to life, conquering death for us, and that he ascended to the right hand of God's throne in heaven where he now reigns and rules, then it changes everything for our lives. Who else do you answer to? What other story is more important in defining your identity? It changes everything. We need to hear this, maybe particularly in this town. A lot of us, a lot of you, still live under the curse of your potential. Here's what I mean by that. Many of you, some of you grew up in DC. Many of you have come to D.C. If you've come to D.C., you didn't land here on accident. Even if you grew up here, this happens. That you have a well-meaning parent or mentor, a coach at some point, a pastor that speaks over you something that you can achieve. Hey, you're really great. You are going to change the world. And then for the rest of your life, 
you feel like you're on a never-ending treadmill trying to live up to that potential that, you've, that others have seen in you. This only gets worse if you grew up in a small town and have come to D.C. Because if you grew up in a small town, that, that probably means that you were a really big fish. And then you come to D.C. and you realize that you, when you live in a city, there's always somebody smarter than you. There's always somebody that's read more. There's always somebody that knows more about any given topic that you choose to be interested in. There's always somebody with them that's more committed than you, that has a larger capacity than you, that, that is more creative than you, that's a better communicator than you. And in this town, often they will work for less. And so it's cutthroat. And it's hard. We've, I've heard one pastor talk about it this way, the pastor in Manhattan, that, that you could have somebody that is the best cellist in, the, uh, in, in a, a state, in a tri-county area that grew up knowing they were the best cello player that any of these people had ever seen and that they can come to a place like New York and step off the subway and have somebody in the subway station that's playing for tips that's better. That rat race of chasing your potential can become a curse that's held over you that you, don't, that you feel a constant pressure to please the people that have so much wrapped up in what you can be. There's no way for you to get out from under that except through Christ. And Jesus can free you from the specter of your own potential because Jesus frees you to retell your own story without having to be the hero of it. So the first thing we see in, in gaining freedom from people-pleasing, the first step is to root yourself firmly in the gospel. The second step in, free, in free, becoming free from people-pleasing is to own your story. Paul doesn't soften who he is and what he's walked through. He doesn't reshape it to make it more palatable for his audience here. And I think there's times when we, we reread Paul's story from a distance, particularly if you read like 2 Corinthians, Paul gets into like, I've been beaten, I've been imprisoned, I've been beaten with rocks and stoned and left for dead, I've been whipped, I've been shipwrecked. And we read that and we go, oh, what an incredible servant of Jesus Christ. He has given up so much. That is not the way his original audience read that. They were lifting up and comparing him to other teachers, and he was showing how he doesn't measure up to any of their other teachers, because he has lived a life that hasn't actually had any notoriety, but instead has only had suffering. And here, too, he's saying, look, this is who I am. This is my story. You've heard of my former life. In Judaism, I persecuted the church of God. I, I violently tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. As Paul owns his story, he says, this is who I am. This is what I have walked through. This is my background in all of its ugliness and all of its brokenness. This is the path that my life has taken up to this point. And we have a tendency to downplay our own stories. Or to, be, or to be so grieved by our own stories that we're unable to, to look at them and acknowledge them with openness and honesty because we're scared of how they define our identity. But they do. They shape us. 
We have a tendency to smooth out the bumpy parts. Or when you tell the hard parts of your story, I mean, do you do this? Where there's times when you'll tell about times that were difficult or mistakes that you've made, but you make sure to tell it with a kind of levity and, and make sure that there's a little bit of a sarcastic twinge in your voice so that when people hear it, they laugh along with you. When we tell our successes, we have a tendency to not want to own our successes because we're scared that people, how people might respond. And so when we tell about how successful we've been at something, it's something we really worked hard on. We, again, people-pleasing, we're like, well, I still want to look humble. And so we even reshape the way that we talk about good things in our lives and tell them in a way that's self-deprecating to show our humility. But also we're just waiting for people to be the ones to tell us how great we actually are. Am I the only one that wrestles with this stuff, church? Okay, I'm not sure, I wasn't sure for a second if like the looks on your face were like, this is reading my heart or what? So thank, thank you for coming along with me here. I felt alone and a little bit like stripped down on the platform. <laughs> we need to own our stories. It's important to own our stories, not just for us, but for the other people that God has placed around us too. Your story is unique to you. And your story has something of God's fingerprint on it even the broken parts and the hard parts. Frederick Buechner says this. He says, maybe nothing is more important than that we've kept track, you and I, of these stories of who we are and where we have come from and the people we have met along the way because it is precisely through these stories in all of their particularity that God makes himself known to each one of us more powerfully and personally. The God of biblical faith is a God who started history in the first place. He is also a God who moment by moment, day by day, continues to act in history always. Which means both the history that gets written down in the New York Times and the San Francisco Chronicle, we can say pridefully, and in the Washington Post. And at the same time, my history and your history which for the most part don't get written down anywhere except in a few lines that might be allotted to us someday in the obituary page. Listen to this, church. This is important. The exodus, the covenant, the entry into the promised land, such mighty acts of God as these appear in Scripture, but no less mighty are the acts of God as they appear in our own lives. God's shaped you through your story. Own it. Embrace it. Study it and learn from it, and then share it with others. Our church needs your story. And particularly, the more hesitant that you feel or more out of place that you think you might be in sharing your story with the people that are immediately around you in your community group and in this church, the more we need it. And so own your story. So this is what the gospel frees us to. If we are rooted in the gospel, we can be freed to own who we are and what we've been through because we know that our past has shaped us, but it isn't ultimately what defines our, the, the true identity that we have as those who bear the image and likeness of God. That God can redeem our stories. And so second step from free, er, for freedom from people-pleasing is to own our stories. Third, rest in God's sovereignty and love. This is what we see Paul get to next. And you see that there's a, a contrastive here that in, in verse 15, he says, this is who I was. I persecuted the church of God violently. I tried to destroy it. And I was successful. <laughs> and I was advancing in Judaism beyond everybody else. I was zealous for, for, my, for the traditions of my fathers. But... 
when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone. Paul has a confidence here that God had set him apart from before he was born. That God's grace was extended to him, not contingent on what he did, but on God's, only contingent on God's love for him. If you're in Christ, you can have the same confidence. God knows you. He knows every bit of your story and even some of the lumps that you don't know about and haven't realized. He knows the brokenness of your story. He knows everything about you. And if you're in Christ, you can have confidence that your story and your life are rooted in him and that he's known you and extended his love and grace to you, not contingent on the things that you've done, but contingent only on his love for you. We, we read about this in Psalm 139 as David, the king, cried out to him. He said, for you formed me in my, in, in, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You hear what David's saying? David's able to confidently say to, before God, you've known me and you're the one that knit me together. You saw me before I was even born and you knew the days of my life and the path that my life would take before there was a single day lived. Allow that to sink into your soul. God knows you. There's no part of you that he is scared of or uncertain about. And if we understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to God's will, that, that he's been raised from death to life, and God's grace and peace have been extended through him, then we can begin to be freed to rest in God's sovereignty and in his love for us. To believe that God has ordered our steps and that he knew us before we knew ourselves and he had purposes for your life before you could even speak. And so rest. Knowing that in Christ, God has known you and he loves you. And so we can go to sleep at night. When we're fearful that we're, about whether we're fully known by anyone, we can go to sleep and lay our heads on the soft pillow of God's sovereignty, that he knows us. When we're afraid of whether we're loved or accepted by anyone, we can go to sleep at night and rest in God's love. We all need this daily reminder that in Christ we are known and loved. But if you want to be freed from people-pleasing, root yourself firmly in the gospel, own your story, and then rest in God's sovereignty and love for you. Fourth, the fourth step is to be patient with God's timing. Here's the rub, right? None of us likes to be patient. I mean, look at what Paul goes on to say. 
He says, you know, that he was called by God's grace. He was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He says, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and then returned to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. We see later on in chapter 2 that then later, after 14 years, he went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and taking Titus with him. And again, I think this is important for us. We have a tendency to read stories, whether it's biblical stories like Paul's, and we have a tendency to read Acts and think that this was a matter of hours or days. Like, Paul came to Christ. He was blinded on the road. We're told it was three days before Ananias came and prayed for him, and he was baptized. And then, the next thing we know, Paul is being sent out. And we go, wow, that's amazing. What an immediate turnaround, an immediate commissioning for ministry. And Paul got to see the fruit of God's calling in his life. And then we find out it was somewhere between 15 and 17 years. We don't like to wait 15 to 17 minutes, let alone 15 years. He knew that he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. But it was, only, it was three years later that he went down to Jerusalem to meet up with Peter. We need to be patient with God's timing. A lot of us in this church are very young. I know not everybody, and those of you with increasingly gray hair, we love you, and I'm so glad that you're part of this church because we need you. But we're a young church. A lot of you are idealistic, even with gray hair. And we want to see the world changed. And that's good. I do too. But we fail to realize so often that the heroes that we look up to are so often the ordering of a divine confluence of events, and a lot of them had to wait for years and decades in their lives to see their self-sacrificial lives come to any fruition. Many of them have no idea what their lives actually resulted in because the impact was felt much later. In our own lives, we need to be patient with God's timing. Is anyone here at the point they hoped they would be by this point in their lives? Do any of you go, you know what? I've achieved everything I set out to. Checked it all off the list. Career-wise, done. I have nothing left to achieve. Relationship-wise, done. I've achieved everything. If you're married, how many of you feel like my marriage has reached the fullness of its potential? We have no growth to pursue because we have arrived. My hand isn't up because I'm saying that. I was giving you the opportunity to confess to that so we could pray for you. <laughs> I mean, I'm naturally an impatient person. And again, I don't think I'm alone in that. It's, it's easier for us to look at our own lives and go, gosh, I'm just not where I hoped I'd be. I'm watching the years start to, ch start to tick by and I'm starting to wonder, like, I'm watching milestone birthdays click by and I'm wondering, am I ever going to get to where I hope to be? We get frustrated about our, our walk. If you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for any amount of time, it's easy to get frustrated about our walk with God and wonder, why, why don't I have the, the power of God at work in my life like I would hope to? And like what I read about in the New Testament, I believe that it's the same God working and the same spirit at work, and I know he works that powerfully through people. Why not in my life? What do I need to do? And how do I get to that point? Because you're dissatisfied with it. And some of that dissatisfaction is good, but we also need to hear that when you live in a city that is by nature one of the most type A places on earth, Sometimes we need to hear, God's timing isn't yours. And so 
Be patient. Allow him to work. And if you want to be freed from people-pleasing, start to think about life and work and relationships and the church on God's timeline and be willing to let go of your own. Fifth step, pursue community. Paul received his gospel directly from Jesus, just like the other apostles. His apostolic authority wasn't something passed down from the others, from Peter or James or John. Um, And so he makes it, he goes over the top here to be explicitly clear that, that he wasn't going to them for the sake of their authority here. He says, I didn't go to Jerusalem to, to those, or I did go up to Jerusalem. Sorry, verse 17. I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia. It's almost, you can almost, it almost feels belligerent, doesn't it? Where Paul's like, yeah, Jesus appeared to me. I could have gone to Jerusalem and talked with the other guys, but I didn't. I took three years to figure it out on my own. Saying I didn't rely on them. I wasn't, my, the gospel that was proclaimed to me was from Jesus himself. It wasn't contingent on them. But then after three years, he did go see him. He went and saw Peter. That's Cephas. He stayed with him for over two weeks. That's a long time to have somebody in your space. House guests are usually like fish. They they all stink after three days. But he went there for two weeks. He's working here to be clear that he did see Peter. Not to receive the core of the gospel from him, but he went there for the sake of fellowship. To connect with him. He also saw James when he was there. He's saying, I'm not lying to you. This is what happened. And then later on, he says he spent time with Peter and James and John, who seemed to be pillars, and and saw, they perceived the grace that was given to me and gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles. And so Paul went to the apostles because he wanted to be connected with them in community because they had been saved by Jesus to one family. And so he went to them to connect with them in community. And so Calvin says here, John Calvin, the reformer, said his meaning is that he was never an alien from the other apostles. And then, in fact, he agreed with them very well. He mentions the short time he stayed there to show that he went, not to learn, but for mutual fellowship. And so if you want to be freed from people-pleasing, lean into and pursue community. How does that help us? Well, I think community is the answer to what helps us with the first four points. How, do we, how are we rooted and firmly in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, we need reminders daily. Well, in community, as you're connected with other Christians around you who follow Christ and remember his gospel, they'll be the ones that will be able to remind you of the good news of what Christ has done for you and who you are in him. How do we learn to own our own story? Well, it's as we spend time with other people. As we hear other people's stories, that's what the Beekner quote said, is that that we'll hear something of our own story even as we listen to other people. And as as we hear other people's stories, it'll open up a vulnerability within us where we're willing to share our story, and then other people around us will be able to make observations about our lives and the ways that our stories have shaped us that we otherwise wouldn't see. And so we need other people around us to help us to even begin to understand and interpret our own lives. So you want to own your own story and be freed from people pleasing, lean into community. 
how, are we, how do we rest in God's sovereignty and love? Well, as we hear about how God's sovereignty and love works itself out in other people's lives, it'll help us to trust that more. But then also, there's, there's times when we simply need somebody to remind us and to ask us the question, do you actually believe that God's got this? Do you th- actually think he's in control? And do you think he loves you? Remember, look, look what he's done for you. And then even the fourth one, being patient with God's timing. When you have people around you that are able to point you back to the gospel, but not only that, that are able to help you endure. Even Moses got tired in the fight, and remember he had to have help holding his arms up as the armies of the Lord fought. Sometimes we need people around us that are going to help hold us up so that we can be patient, so that we can make it to the end. So pursue community together. This is, this is part of how we can be freed from people-pleasing is to be in relationship, in deep relationship with people around us. A sixth step to freedom from people-pleasing is to be content to labor in obscurity. Can you hear that? There's almost like glee in Paul's voice here. He's saying, then, in verse 21, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And so he's saying, they didn't even know who I was. They wouldn't have recognized me. And this is a guy that later on became more recognizable. And you can almost hear the, uh, his glee and, and excitement over that period in his life and ministry when nobody knew who he was and he was able to go and freely do anything that he wanted to do and be able to follow God's call and Christ's call. And it wasn't about his own notoriety. Can you imagine feeling the freedom to live this way? Now, Francis Schaeffer said this. He said, Jesus commands Christians to seek consciously the lowest room. All of us, pastors, teachers, professional, religious workers, non-professional included, are tempted to say, I'll take the larger place because it'll give me more influence for Jesus Christ. Both individual Christians and Christian organizations fall prey to the temptation of rationalizing this way as we build bigger and bigger empires. But according to scripture, this is backwards. We should consciously take the lowest place unless the Lord himself extrudes us into a greater one. I love that portrait and that language. This is actually what the gospel motivates us to, is to be willing to labor in obscurity because it's not about our name. That that kind of freedom, though, is a freedom from people-pleasing to learn to be content. What if God never gives you the kind of influence that you dreamed of? What if his calling to you is faithfulness? And what if you're able to release the pressure that you feel in potential and for influence and be willing to just take what God puts in front of you unless he extrudes you, pushes you into a form, into something different? And Schaefer gave us two reasons. He said, first, you should take the lowest place because it's easier in in a lower place to be quiet before the Lord. And second, we shouldn't seek a larger place that we deliberately and egotistically lay hold of leadership, wanting drums to beat and trumpets to blow, because if we have that approach to things, then we are not qualified for Christian leadership in the first place. And so if we're driven to notoriety, even if we cloak it in good Christian language of greater influence, we can become consumed with pleasing people. Instead, release 
Let go of the need to control the impact and the fruit of the things that you do. Enjoy the faithfulness that God has called you to. Finally, and seventh, see I told you we'd make it through, church. We're on the last point. The seventh step, and it's the number of completion, it just seemed good. (laughs) The seventh step to freedom from people-pleasing is to celebrate God's glory. And everything leads up to this. There's a progression here that you can see in the Apostle Paul. And you see in verse 24, the end that he was aiming toward, and they glorified God because of me. Remember that what the gospel is, that, that it's scripture alone that reveals God's good news and his word for us that stands as our, the authoritative proclamation of who he is and what he's done. And that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved, brought into relationship with God. And it's to the glory of God alone that our lives are committed and and that all things work toward. And so here, again, there's a legitimacy here. Paul isn't just putting on a front to try to convince us that that he sounds Christian here. He's saying that he enjoyed laboring in obscurity because there were people who glorified God on account of him and because of his life and ministry. And do you see why they glorified God? It's because they had heard what had happened. It's among people in churches. So this is, they glorified God because the people were rooted firmly in the gospel. They glorified God because they understood Paul's story and his background, even the hard parts of it that were difficult to own. They glorified God because they saw God's sovereignty and love at work in him and because of his timing in, in calling Paul. I mean, do you think there was a point at which people in the early church were like, well, God, couldn't you have called him before he, like saw someone killed and like threw a bunch of people in jail but God's timing was perfect and they glorified God because of it they glorified God in community it was among the churches that people were praising God and they they were and they glorified God even though Paul was continuing to labor in obscurity and what that meant was that Paul didn't build his own platform and reputation for the sake of influence but instead rested in God's glory as being primary Again, this is what Paul frees Paul to say to the Corinthians. What is it to me that you judge me? It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I don't even judge myself. And why is he able to say that? Well, because everything he does is oriented to the glory of God. So if you want to be freed from people-pleasing, if you want to be released from that pressure, then it takes a change in the posture of your heart that what you're pursuing isn't accolades from people. Their pleasure with you. That's your own glory. But if you're able to continually and daily make it the posture of your heart that you're pursuing God's glory, that your desire above everything else is his worship and that other people would join you in worshiping him, then it'll be a very small thing to you when anyone or any human court judges you. You'll be able to release it because you're not living to please men or women around you. You'll be freed to please God alone. So we can be freed from people pleasing. The Apostle Paul was, and it's not because he's so great. It's because he trusted in a great God. Martin Luther continued, in spite of his dad's great disappointment with him, to pursue the path that God called him to. 
And the impact of his life was greater, and God had ordained for him work for the sake of his own glory. But Paul gives us a map here in his own life. It's rooted in the gospel, and that's our only hope. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, it all starts with point number one. You need to be willing to to see the beauty of who God is and what he has done for you and be able to understand that that understanding the good news of the gospel and believing in Christ and turning to him in repentance remaps our story within his and changes everything for us. It frees us to be able to own our stories and to rest in God's sovereignty and love, to be patient with God's timing and to pursue community, to be content to labor in obscurity, and ultimately the gospel frees us to celebrate God's glory. You don't have to live to please other people. You can be freed from it. And it's Christ that gives you that freedom. Let's pray. And Father, we want to believe, so help us in our unbelief today. I want to pray for those here who who aren't following you through Christ, that you would stir in their hearts by your spirit and show the freedom that Christ gives us. And for those of us who are following Christ, Father, would you help us? Because every one of those seven points is a struggle. It's an internal battle. But would you help us? Would you move in your spirit to give us a greater assurance of your presence so that we could be freed from the pressure to please the people around us? Would you move through your church to live in that kind of freedom that we could be a force for your good and for the good of this city, bringing unity where there's division, helping people to be able to see how their own story has shaped them and how it can be a part of your plan for redemption. So, Father, thank you that you free us from the pressure to please people because of your great pleasure with us in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.